Hello and welcome. Happy Monday. It's This Is Going Well, I Think, with David Cooper. I'm David Cooper. It's This Is Going Well, I Think, the show where no one's listening, no one cares, the only show where every episode's the last episode. Today we're going to talk to a freelance writer who covers housing, transportation, and urban policy. He's written for the SF Examiner, SF Weekly, City Lab. And rather recently, he covered some of the radio work me and my fellow hosts did at Burning Man during the rain event for the Paris Review. We're going to talk about that article, about him, about urban planning, and about whatever random shit we get to. This is one of the first interviews I've done on this show in my house, so the format's a little different. And I'm looking forward to you hearing this. Oh, I should probably tell you my guest's name. His name is Benjamin Schneider. Let's jump in with Ben. nervous not not really do i intimidate you uh more on air than in person i see i'm a two foot eight jew uh <laughs> i haven't lifted a weight in my life do you prefer ben or benjamin ben that's okay. what people call me yeah i felt weird emailing you ben because then i like you know looked you up online a bit and uh it was all benjamin yeah it's both i mean i guess the more official like bylines i have are, are benjamin which I, I like but in personal interaction and ben yeah. I like to, to separate the worlds a little bit, you know? I hear that. Yeah. I don't like Dave. Mm, no. Okay. Yeah, I understood. I, I know a lot of Davids who don't like Dave. Yeah. Yeah. I'm one of them. Dave, I was, the problem is I was Dave until I was 20. Hmm. And okay. so there's a few people. Can you say grandfathered? I heard that one's a bad one now. <laughs> I, I still use it. You still use yeah. it. Yeah. Okay. You're not, not a bleeding heart liberal. Yeah. Uh, so this is like a shock jock program where you try to get me to say something. <laughs> no, I am. Yeah. No, I, I listened to your show a, a few episodes and it, I was really, uh, taken by the, the variety of guests you have. It's, it's a cool kind of just slice of interesting conversations. Yeah. I appreciate it. Good. Yeah. I mean, I do interview people about me mostly. Yeah. Which really brings us to why you're here. I haven't done a lot of in-person Ben. And so the eye contact thing's really going to bother yeah. me. I don't know what the right amount is. But I'm glad you're here. Uh, you, okay, let me, let me take a step back here. You, uh, you wrote about the work we did at Burning Man. Yes. That's, how, that's how I became, and I was talking to someone, you may have heard it, his name's Dennis Lee, and he was like, thank everyone who gives you press. Be a gracious person. And I'm uh-huh. like, that's right. I've never, well, I got press once from the Jerusalem Post, but I didn't want to <laughs> share it. Back to being a bleeding heart liberal. I'm a hardcore liberal, but I'm like a Bill Maher liberal. You know, I offend, okay. I offend people. I mean, you're edgy. Yeah, you're, yeah. you're a shock jock. I don't, well, am I? Okay, I'll take it. I, <laughs> no, mean, I mean, just when I heard your voice, I was very impressed by the the timber of your voice. Thank you. I think you were you were built to be on the radio, built to rile people up a little bit and, and uh, get them to say things they don't want to say. That's how it sounds, at least. I... Do, but behind the scenes, I have decided that if I get, a, especially if it's taped and I get a snippet that that someone's like, oh no, you can't get that out. That will, I'm not a jerk. I'll, I'll cut. No, I, I can see that too. You're and also a nice Jewish boy. Thank I, you. Again, in person, it's really evident. Is it? Yeah. Mr. Schneider, game recognized game. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah, so I'm, I, I'm, but I hate that the, the left, especially like the far left 
Like, I vote NDP in Canada. Do you know much about Canadian politics? Not much. I have heard of NDP, okay. but I really know very little. I know everyone's, like, pissed off at Trudeau, but there's not much you can do to get him out of there. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't like him, but the alternatives. Well, I, I do like the leader of the NDP, but mm -hmm. um, that's, like, what an American would consider a far-left party. Because mm -hmm. you guys consider, like, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren is, like, the furthest left you can go. In right. reality, they're center-left. Yeah. So, yeah, but I just, I lament that my camp, my team gets offended so easy. And that's part of, like, you you say you're a, a lefty in the U.S. and you, you take on all these additional viewpoints that, like, I don't have. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, I definitely resonate with the, you know, the smorgasbord of opinions that you're supposed to kind of subscribe to as a, a person on the left. I, I struggle with that. I want to be my own person and uh, form my own views based on my way of observing the world and everything. And it does feel like that that's sometimes not kosher. But, but, you know, I think even the fact that we're having this conversation, it's, it's kind of a commonplace thing now to be like, you know, I don't want to subscribe to all the dogmas. I don't want to be, you know, just a, a box checker of uh, a political person. I think there's, there's more space for, for that. Good. So we'll use the word grandfathered. <laughs> we will use the word, yeah. All that is to say, totally okay to use the word grandfathered. No one's going to get offended about that one. I don't think. I don't even remember why I use that word. Not important. Dave, was it about? Your, oh yeah, yeah. They, see, your this nickname is why. Was, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so why I bring you here? You're have a good memory. So yeah, no. Uh, so the problem is, people call me Dave, who knew me before I was twenty, mm. and then my other people who knew me after I was twenty. They see when when these worlds collide, they see people calling me Dave, and I accept it. Whereas with strangers and new people, uh, I get really upset, and, yeah. and it's like a double standard. But I guess that's that's me, the the contradictory. I'm a shock jock. I, I hate I hate you and also like you for saying that. Because I want to be that, but I want to be more than that. And when I look to someone like Howard Stern, who interviews Hillary Clinton after she loses the election, and, yeah. I mean, whatever. If you buy into these American politicians uh, for a moment, rather than just thinking they're all evil, it was a great interview. Yeah. Um, and then he has the strippers and the farts and the, you know, the little people who are naked and the, you know, biggest penis and... He does it all, and, and I, I don't want to be that. I think he's a bit of a dinosaur, but also I do want to be that just in a more, I don't know, youthful. Yeah, I get it. I mean, it's great to be popular and known, and that's what we're all trying to do as, as quasi-arts-adjacent people, I feel like. But I think that's that's a good segue into why I was so intrigued by your show on, on BMIR, because it was so professional and so well done, and like I said, your voice is, is awesome. Oh. I was I was like, who is this, like, real radio broadcaster that's <laughs> well, doing this. It's funny when you wrote the article and said that I'm a professional broadcaster, that actually resonated with me because I, I guess I still am, but it's a weird label to lose when you lose your job. Like mm. if you're a nurse and you go to nursing school and you work at a hospital and then you get canned, you're still a nurse. Yeah. But if you're a radio host and your show gets canceled and you're unemployed, what are you? You're not on the radio. I think that's selling yourself short. Sure, you're not on the radio, but you are still a professional. You know, you're still... Oh, my God. You've been through the, the grind of being paid to host a show, and now you're trying to get back on that grind. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm at a crossroads. Do okay. I want to do this? Because the, um, the limit for podcasting is unlimited. Let, you know, the amount of people that make a decent living, a decent amount of money, uh, are well-known, these kinds of things, in podcasting... Howard Stern aside, how many famous, fun, 
radio hosts. I mean, forget Rush Limbaugh. Right, yeah, you know, I know forget kind of he's freaky, dead. But, like Levin or something. Yeah. Um, forget the, the fire and brimstone conservatives yeah. that COVID happened because of gay people or something. Right. Uh, how many fun people are there at the very top who make a lot of money? There are a few. Yeah. But there are many. Handful. Right. But right. if I challenge you to name one versus challenging you to name a famous or well-known or successful podcaster, I, I assume you would be able to name more. Do you remember Michael Krasny? I don't. He was uh, a KQED host in San Francisco for like 30 years and was really cool. I think he was sort of a unique figure because he was part of an older school radio tradition, but he lasted well into the the 2000s and he would review like really intellectual books and have, you know, super thoughtful people on to discuss current affairs. So that was a cool, that was, that was for him, I think before its current iteration. He was the host of that for a long time. Okay. Yeah. I'm see, I have cultural gaps yeah. as much as I started living in the U S and San Francisco. I've only been in the States for, I guess, 10 years. Okay. I shouldn't call it the States anymore. That's something a foreigner <laughs> calls the country. Uh, Just call it States. That's like a real normal thing to say. But yeah, in your article, you wrote professional broadcaster, David Cooper. And I was like, wow, I guess, I guess <laughs> I am you. I don't know. There was something healing in that. I really struggled with, I mean, I'm doing about a lot better now, but when I, lost my job, which was in, I don't know, about a year ago. Mm. I, I was fucked. I, I like didn't do anything for several months. And then I did the bare minimum for several months. And now I'm doing this, which is a lot of work, but I'm not doing that final 20% of getting it out there. Yeah. Because when you work for a big radio network, I've said this on my show over the last, I don't know, every episode, but when you work for a big media company, I was talking my to my friend who was a, who's a writer, you, you get that built in. You don't mm-hmm. have to go on TikTok and show your boobs or whatever it is to try to beg for followers. You don't right. have to say like and subscribe at the end of the video. You, you know. And, and so I got sort of arrogant. I didn't need that. And I was better than people who did that. And But yeah, a big company can just take it away from me. So I struggled. I'm doing better now. And now I'm at a crossroads. Do I try to get my old job back? Mm-hmm. I have a decent lead on getting a job similar to my old one back. I, I hope it pans out. I th- had a decent lead a few months ago that did not pan out, but I don't know. Or do, or do I lean into this? Because eventually I'm going to run out of money. Eventually I got to go back to my old yeah, career. Yeah. Well, I'm really happy that my characterization of you as a professional DJ really made you feel good. Um, you know, it's it's great to have people respond well to your work. And it is nice that you also reached out and uh, thanked me for writing the article as someone else who's in this kind of general I'm, I'm i'm a content creator in a somewhat different medium but i'm still kind of on the same grind and it's always nice to have people like respond positively to your work and show that they actually saw it and stuff so that was a good feeling for me as well oh that we everyone who worked at the station loved that's your, awesome yeah uh, i know you're just like oh i'm a content creator don't worry there will be an introduction for you <laughs> that i will record later that well, will say who you are well please don't introduce me as a content creator <laughs> That's, it's, I'm using that term ironically, but it's also true. Unfortunately, it's see, it's hard. Yeah, independent contact cr- content yeah. creator versus like writer for the New York Times. Yeah, and yet a, certainly not that. But no, I'm not. <laughs> no, I know. I know. I have written down the various papers you've written for the Examiner, the Weekly in San Francisco. But um, it, you know, I'm just saying for the example, uh, writer for the New York Times might make a normal salary. Yeah, not even a great salary. I don't even know what these fuckers make. Like. They, they make pretty good salaries. Do they? Yeah. But even still, let's say 100K, mm-hmm. 120K. Someone who has a sub stack with 10,000 subscribers who pay $5 a month, yeah. that person's making millions. Yeah. I didn't do the math. Don't do it. 
Uh, wait, 10,000 times 5 times 12 is 50,000 times 12. That's a million. No, that's uh, 600,000. Yeah, no, I think some of the, the big sub-stackers are probably getting close to making a million a year, which is just insane. But what is their label? Independent content creator. Right. And this fucker who's making less than them, uh, who may, may well have less of a following, writer for the New York Times. That's, right. It's the labels that are so yeah. tricky and that these big companies can dangle over you. Yeah, totally. I don't know. Although they're, you know, as a writer, I, I would say it's it's nice to have an affiliation and a stability you know that comes with being a, a normal worker at a publication rather than you know a, a substack celebrity which also would be cool and has amazing pros to it as well but um it's certainly a more precarious and like you know you have to really you have to constantly sell yourself you're constantly building your brand in a way i think you don't when you're you know just a staff writer at a paper or something yeah it's exactly the same for radio except for me working a late night show not having a ton of experience, it being my first real job, I was working like 14 hours a day. Yeah. You know, it was a four hour show. So four hours of content and then another eight getting it ready because it was a late night show. Many of my guests would not do live appearances. So yeah. I had to tape it during the day and it would be in 10 minute pockets here Jesus, or there. It's a four hour show. 20 hours of, I mean, there was commercial. So it's yeah. more like 45 minutes to the hour, yeah. but still four, four 45 minute blocks five days a week, yeah. a part-time producer for some of it. When the network could, they'd give me a full-time producer. There's a board op there with me, but the board op was only resourced for maybe an hour and a half before the show. So I cut most of my audio clips because mm. the board op, the technical producer, if you watch Frasier. No. Okay. No. Well, Roz is Doyle is his quote unquote producer, but she's really the two jobs, which is the content producer and the like technical producer, the nerd at the soundboard. Yeah. And so I had that dude with me. It was a few different people. Um, and they were great. It's when you're dying on air, you can always just say something to the board up. Yeah. Uh, although give, me, give me some funny sound effects. Or, or just like, <laughs> just start a conversation. Although some of my ops were more or less amenable to that. But yeah, yeah it, was, it was so much work. So you're talking about the stability that a job like that can give you, a, pay, a normal paycheck and nine to five. But for me, it introduced a lot of instability to mm -hmm. my life because I never saw my girlfriend, never saw my friends. Mm -hmm. Uh, I never slept, so I don't know. I'm just complaining about me. Let's talk about, let's jump up a little bit because it's not all about me uh, and talk more about me. No, I want to talk to you about your article, but more about listening to BMIR, of which I am just one part of. Yeah. Uh, Burning Man Information Radio. You were at the event or you were at home curious about what was happening? I was at people? home. So I, I went the year before this year um, and had an amazing time. It was a, a very... Um, it was a big moment for me. I feel like I, I learned something about myself. I learned what Burning Man is, which is uh, also important. for Take a lot of drugs and your third eye opens. Uh, you know, not even that many, just a little bit. I, honestly, if I were to come back, I, I might have, I might uh, elevate on that level a little bit more. Um, but I, I grew to love BMIR on the way up to Burning Man the first year. And um, this year I was just like, totally, I need to listen to it to just get some of the flavor of Burning Man while I'm stuck here in New York. And then the added drama of the, the mud and the rain was like, oh my gosh, this is, this is content gold um, for, for those who can take advantage of it. And you guys took advantage of it. And I think it was really cool the way that you were doing both like real public service journalism and also making it really funny and like creative and, and doing a lot of shticks. So yeah, it was cool. Yeah. I, I felt we did, you know, 
to be honest, we work at this radio station at this event. We, when we're there, it's like the most important thing in the world. But sometimes when I'm talking to strangers, I realize how ins- insignificant it is. But not only that, people only really listen to the radio station there when they're driving in yeah. and when they're leaving. During the event, I mean, there's better things to do yeah. than listen to the radio. <laughs> and people aren't in their cars, so you got to have a handheld radio. It's pretty, like the staff who work there who get to drive around in their cars, they kind of listen. But that's about it. So we get kind of, you know, thousands of people driving in, listening to get excited about the event and maybe hear a little bit about the traffic. And then thousands of people listening at the end right. to get out because they want to know how long their wait is. And that's basically the extent of the station. Those are our big times. Uh, we're not so great that people come to the event for the radio station. But then it starts raining and everyone's like, you know, their cells aren't working. A lot of camps don't have internet. I mean, there's Starlinks. There's a few camps with internet. But by and large, people don't have this shit. And... They're told to listen to us to find out when they can leave, what the what the impact of the rain is, all that. And it was this moment to just really rise to the occasion, like you were saying. And I, and I feel we did. At first, the idea was we just turn into serious, almost automated style. Yeah. And I'm like, that's what, but that's not who we are. That's not why we're here. That's not what this station is. So was there a discussion about like, you know, we've got these PSAs we need to put out, the bus depot's closed, whatever it is. And you're, somebody was like, okay, let's just, put it out straightforward, serious. And then you or someone else comes in and says like, no, let's do con genre. Uh It was way more. I would like to think that we sat down and had this meeting. Yeah. It just it's, sort of happened. Yeah. So here's the messaging. We're getting radioed from the organization. You have to get this out now. You yeah. have to get this out now. You know, it's, it's the organization that's trying to manage what could be a large crisis. Mm-hmm. It, in my opinion, it did not turn into that. But if those shit pumpers, those trucks were full and could not leave, that would have been, for me, nothing, like there was always enough food. There's enough water. Uh, People bring way too much food. Mm -hmm. Every year, don't you, I mean, was it your first year last year? Yeah, yeah, and we had way too much When you left, did you have food that you you, you donated or that you brought home? Yeah, I mean, it wasn't in the greatest condition, but yes, we had too much food. (laughs) Everyone has too much food. Yeah, Uh, There's enough water. The real worry is that the porta potties overflow mm-hmm. because that's that is a serious crisis, and yeah. so that's realistically internally, at least as I observed. I'm not core staff at that event. I'm I'm just an employee at the radio station. As I saw it, and as I was told, and I watched the CEO of Burning Man do an interview during the thing. That was the real worry. There mm-hmm. may have been people worried that it was going to turn into Lord of the Flies. But the real worry was the shit. Yeah, I think there was more people on the outside fantasizing that it would turn into Lord of the Flies, and well. The- I think the people that left and the people that were really upset were the ones who talked to the media. Yeah. So there may have been a hundred people who tried to leave, who got stuck, who were real, whose stuff got completely flooded and they were near hypothermia and this, that, and the other. Uh, and so those people talked to the media. And so that's how they got their story. Totally, totally. I mean, the reality of it is people were just helping people get through a mine. It was, it rained. Like, that's so funny to me when you really look at what happened, it rained. That's it. Right. But that's what we were faced with. And so it felt like a bit of an emergency and we were getting, you know, messaging by the minute, by the hour, you know, dictated to us over our um, walkie talkie radios, this kind of thing. And so we go to record some of them. And I think somebody recorded a serious one and I had been walking around. My boss was in our little recording studio. The head of production was in there and I had been walking around Burning Man earlier the day, earlier in the day, kind of doing like an Eric Andre thing. Do you know that comedian? Yeah. Uh, you know, his character, um, I don't even remember the name, but he goes up to people. He's like, you're something stew. Like, right. I know you, you know, you're douchebag Dave. I know you. And then the people on the street are like, what? I'm not douchebag Dave. He's like, yeah, you are. 
So I just kept on going up to people and saying, your butthole, Steve, and making that voice. Wow. So that just kind of came to you? And then I was asked, because I do radio professionally, I was yeah. asked to do a voiceover or some voice work for one of these PSAs. And I asked my boss, can I do it as butthole Steve? Yeah. Uh, and my boss is like, fine. <laughs> that turned out amazing. Yeah. yeah. The, the guitar riff over it. like That was Beavis and Butthead, I think. Right, yeah. Uh, it's just a really good riff. They base that on ACDC. But, yeah, uh, I, I, could, I could feel the Beavis and Butthead spirit through you. And then my boss, who was going to record the beginning of this thing, he had done it really like straight man. And everyone in the studio is laughing as I do this uh, butthole Steve take. Mm -hmm. And then he's like, can I redo my intro? And everyone's like, what? He's like getting in the silly mood. And he's like, I'm like, why don't you be Chopper Josh? And I'm because th I uh, in Frasier, which I mentioned earlier, Frasier's whenever something awkward happens on the air, he always throws to Chopper Dave. Uh -huh. He's like, back to you, Chopper Dave, after something embarrassing happens. So I'm like, why don't you be Chopper Josh? Or, and that was how the first one got cut. And then so I was in there at that moment when we did our first silly thing. And then the team just took it and ran with it. I wasn't I woke up then I went out and I don't know, I just went to sleep. I'd been up all day and I, I wake up the next morning and there's 10 or 15 ridiculous yeah. ads all the characters that my friends do on the air my my campmate decided to do one as butthole barb she right. didn't even tell me <laughs> so that that's how it happened it was very organic yeah yeah i can totally imagine sort of things spiraling as the bmr people are just riffing on these things and then eventually you land somebody finds the tattered copy of william blake and just has to read a, a couplet and needs to convey that to the whole camp that this is what's important now is we need to think about William Blake's verse as we, as we try to escape this scene. Yeah. I, uh, it was fun. So, okay. So you're listening at home. You're a journalist. What are you making of what you're hearing? Well, yeah. I mean, I think first and foremost, I wanted to find out what was actually happening in on the playa at, at, at Burning Man. And I had this very clear impression that the media accounts were not really accurate and not really describing what was actually going on. It rained. Yeah. That's it. Right. That's the story. Right. I think for most people who have been there, you could kind of imagine what was happening. And, you know, the Lord of the Flies scenario is so unfathomable because people are in such good spirits and so generous and loving towards one another. It's really bad shit like that is not going to happen at Burning Man, short of, you know, true, full on apocalyptic disaster. A little rain, I don't think, is going to cause that. So I, was, I, wanted to, I wanted to find out what the real story was. And I think BMIR, more than any other news outlet, had the real story. Yeah. And so what did you hear? Just It was like you expected yeah. it to be people were helping each other, don't be dickheads. Yeah. I mean, it was fun to hear the people coming on, um, coming into the station and being like, I need a ride to Reno. I mean, I guess that's kind of a, a pretty standard yep. thing anyway. But it seemed like you know now there's a little bit more of a strong plea <laughs> for, from a lot of people who are kind of in a tough spot. Um, but yeah, it, it, more than anything, I could just see like life is going on. You know, there's some, some sweet tunes. Uh, the DJs are, are still bringing their personality. No one is like freaking out. And then I started to hear the PSAs and that's, that's when I was like, wow, this is a really unique moment in, uh, you know, certainly any kind of radio broadcast I've ever heard. Um, and a part of this whole situation at Burning Man that I think is just really cool that people might want to hear about. Okay. Well, I'm glad you listened. Yeah. Uh, it's funny. You mentioned- I listened for probably like 10 hours over the those three days. <laughs> and you caught, I always do a phone call with my mom towards the end of the the burn. It's funny. I She's may, a good sport. She is. Shout out to your mom. Thank you. I maybe owe my radio career to my phone calls to my mom. I, one year I, so when I was, I probably, you've probably heard me tell this story if you've listened to anything I've done, but 
uh, one year I really wanted to do something wild with her. And so when I was a little kid, this is okay. Here's the, 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 the motivating story. I'm 10 years old. I'm in my grandmother's condo in Miami. Of course I'm a Jew and I'm sharing the master bed with my mom and my grandmother's in the guest room. My siblings are at my other grandparents' place. And I had been watching the scrambled porn channel all day. So I was horny and I was 10, 11, 12 years old. And so, I, and my, my parents come, my mom comes home abruptly from dinner. I, you know, I, I didn't get a chance to finish what I set out to do. So I'm laying there next to my mom in the master bed. And I decide at 11 years old, it's a good idea to masturbate next to her. That's where the story ends. You know, fast, fast forward, I don't know, I'm 33, 32, 31 at the time. 20 years, I decide I'm going to call my mom and confess this to her. My mom's a good sport. On air. On air. If, yeah. I, if I was at the dinner table, you know, she, my mom was sitting right there and I told her the story, she would not be happy. She, she would be a normal mom. Yeah. She'd be extremely upset. But she plays on the radio. I don't know. She's great. Yeah. Uh, she wasn't always great. We didn't always get along, but she's great. And uh, so I, I tell this story on air and uh, a Canadian, you know, a well-known Canadian broadcaster hears this. He goes to Burning Man and he introduces himself to me. He's now a friend of mine. He helped me get my first job. Yeah. So- you heard one of those calls this year. I don't even remember. What did I, I forget at this point? Well, there was the anecdote about the vibrator. Yes. You basically interviewed her about her sex life. Yes. And her preferences. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. I, I thought there was some sexist, evil, you know, chauvinist narrative about my dad keeping the vibrator on right. his side of the bed. But she, she's like, I don't understand technology. Yeah, yeah. Which that was just such a beautiful moment because I think it exactly, you subverted the the classic sexist narrative that maybe people would be assuming. Yeah. And it all just comes back to older people struggling with technology. So, yeah. mu so much of, of life is that. <laughs> <laughs> is that why Trump got elected? Basically, maybe, yeah. Maybe, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just on Facebook reading whatever's Yeah. Written, yeah. Uh, okay. So that's, that's that. I've, I've talked about Burning Man to death. I've promised the listener, singular intended, of this show that I would stop. And here we are. I do want to talk about you because you're interesting, probably. <laughs> let's find out. Uh, let's find out. Well, I'm going to try to get you to say out more so I can sense your Canadian accent. Yeah, that's a funny one. I, um, I don't know where my accent is. Sometimes I stop in my brain just before I say something and I decide which way to go. Mm -hmm. Pasta or pasta is a big one for me. Pasta is crazy. You guys got to stop saying that. Or drama. Also really weird. Yeah. Yeah. That's a weird one. I think I, I, I just, it's weird when you live in another country and then you start to hear your own accent. Mm -hmm. First you move there and then you go back home and you start to hear it. You start to hear your friends and family's accents, which is very strange. Then you start to hear your own and then you start to, if, I mean, this is me. And then you start to conform to the local accent mm -hmm. a bit. So I, I, I got pulled in the direction of California. Now I'm getting pulled a bit into the direction of New York. But by starting to hear your own accent, you start to be able to make a choice how much with which you engage with it. And that's a very odd feeling. Are you a code switcher? Is that's the linguistic term for it? Yeah, right. I mean, choosing how much to use a given accent in a given context. Probably. Yeah. Yeah. I always use the phrase code switching to mean, like I, I studied computers and so I socialize with nerds. And I turn into a different person talking about programming yeah. languages and microcontrollers and same thing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you are, have you always been a writer? Yeah. Yeah. Jesus. That's a tough feat. Yeah. It's, it's not the best career path. I wouldn't necessarily recommend it to someone who wants stability and, and a good pay, but, um, it's amazing. It's so much fun and it's so fulfilling to have ideas and talk to people and then write things and have them 
you know, have other people read them out in the world. It's so weird for me because I'm dyslexic. So I've always oh. had weird shame associated with writing. I probably had typos in my emails to you. They caused me great embarrassment. I don't think you did. Well, I use, I use ChatGPT to correct them now, wow. or, or I use a screen reader to read them back to me. But I That's remember- interesting that you gravitated towards audio. Um, I have a, a friend who's, you know, really into audio. He was into audio books as a kid yeah. and then now is a podcast producer. And dyslexic? No, I don't, th- no, oh. not dyslexic. <laughs> but the great governor of California, Gavin Newsom, famously in- incredibly dyslexic and basically can't read. He he has all of his like briefings, uh, like I think recorded. Maybe, yeah. maybe now he uses ChatGPT to do it or something. Um, and, you know, famously doesn't read teleprompters. So he has to speak extemporaneously. It's but, tough. Yeah. I'm actually okay with reading stuff, but I sometimes make up words and rearrange words. So sometimes what I like, it'll sound like I'm reading something correctly, but who knows if I am. Well, that's the beauty of English too, is you, you can rearrange words and it still works. Yeah. Often. I just fill in the gaps basically. Yeah. But okay. Somehow we got back to me. Narcissism. That's how, uh, do you consider yourself an artist? No, really? I, I uh, would love to consider myself an artist, but no. Um, I think there's a lot of art and artistry to writing, but to call it, to call like journalism and nonfiction writing art, you have to, you have to clear a pretty high bar, I think, of uh, kind of poetic uh, license and, and play of, of words to, to make creative nonfiction kind of fall into the art category, in my opinion. Do you consider yourself a creative? Yeah, for sure. But not an artist? No, not currently as I, in the, in the manner in which I put out content into the world today. Do you see, a, I see a bit of a contradiction there. You're a creative, but you're not an artist. Well, creative is an interesting term because it's, it's often applied in a more like businessy context as well. You know, like creative directors at ad agencies or, um, you know, the creative class. Have you heard that term before? It's sort of like a economic development concept of, the, the people who are like software engineers and consultants and other white collar workers whose, whose work is not like rote. It's creative in the sense that you have to like generate new ideas. So, so cre- yeah, creative, I think is kind of an interesting loaded word. Um, but I do, I am a, a creative in, in that context. And I think I'm also creative in a, a more humanistic sense of I, I create things and I, I strive to um, put new things out into the world. But I don't know. I think artist and art, there's, there's a very high bar in, in the way that I see it. Interesting. I was having a conversation with my girlfriend the other day. I, it's going to sound arrogant, but I, I, and I struggle with this, but I've decided I accept the label artist or am I an artist is what I do art. Cause I don't do, I mean, I have, and when I had a big job, I did. I don't do like reporting and journalism mm-hmm. and, and news and this kind of stuff. I hate it. Sorry. I actually really like consuming it. I hate creating it. It's a, to, for me to interview a Canadian politician when I had that job took so much out of me. Yeah. And I wasn't good at it. And, but back to me, let's not dwell there so much. Let's go to the conversation. I consider myself an artist, whatever. You can reject that or, or maybe it didn't fit into what you just said and now I feel attacked. <laughs> but I'm having a conversation with my girlfriend. She's a product designer at a tech company. Yeah. And I sort of, she was talking about some design she did and mocking up apps and colors and, you know, kind of visual artsy adjacent work for a company. And, yeah. and I sort of said, well, you're not an artist. And she said, yes, I am. Yeah. To which I said, you are. And it got me thinking, and I know I'm, <laughs> it's like the stupidest conversation because it's been like, okay, walk into MoMA. Is that art? But um, 
my take was if you say someone's not an artist and they say yes i am <laughs> that's the bar for me if someone if you so there's people who are i consider obviously artists Les Claypool from, from uh, Primus, I think. Do you know who that is? No. It's okay, you don't have to know him. I think there's people out there that are like iconoclast. I don't know what that word is. I've used it several times. But there's people that are obviously artists. Picasso, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, Ansel Adams. Uh, I don't know. Are comedians artists, stand-up comedians? Yeah, no, I, I think this is an interesting question. And I don't know that there's like a clear boundary around it. I, I guess the way that I think about it for myself is that my work is is very analytical. Mm-hmm. And so for me, that there is a bit of a conflict there between analytical um, work that is is focused on clarity and communication. Um, the opposite on, of this show. <laughs> exactly. Communication on a, a more direct level as opposed to communication on a meta or ironic or, um, you know, purely kind of interpretational level. Mm-hmm. Um so maybe I've just gotten a little too strict around like what I think art is. Well, I think you're not. And I've boxed myself out of it. Well, no, cause that, part of it is I think I have a bit of a complex about my own work. Cause to, to do the kind of writing that one must to, to make money, you can't just write creative essays, you know, which is kind of where I would gravitate towards. Can you not? Um, you can, but you can't earn much money on that. And, and it's difficult to build an audience and build a career. And frankly, I, I think, I love that kind of writing and I want to do more of it. And I think hopefully later in my career, I'll have an opportunity to do that in a, a bigger way. But I also think it's very healthy for me and my own writing and thinking to have that counterbalanced with more analytical, more straightforward work that I, I would not think of as artistic, really. So the Jewish pessimism, self-hatred, <laughs> uh, never good enough. Work ethic, delayed gratification. <laughs> <laughs> but okay, back to... So, but for me, it's like, there's people who are obviously artists and then there's the people that maybe you think aren't. And if you tell them they're not artists and they say, yes, I am. Yeah, that's an awkward conversation. No, to me, that's the bar. (laughs) That's the bar. If you defend your work and say, no, what I do is art, it's art. No, it's exactly. That's my definition. I think that's that's, uh, a widely shared definition because it's just like, I think, as you were saying, when you walk into MoMA, because the artist says it is, it's, it's art. Yeah. And I think that's totally fair. And I guess I'm, I'm, you know, taking a stand right here at your kitchen table and saying, I'm not an artist and what I do is not art. But if someone else says, no, you are, then, <laughs> then, then we're in a sticky spot. I don't know. I think writing is to me very, a very high form. I mean, it's, it's, I don't know. I, I used to be a coder, mm-hmm. software engineer. That's how I was able to get a green card. Believe me, you call me a professional radio host. If I asked uh, USCIS yeah. for a green card based on my radio work, they would laugh and say, get the fuck out of the country uh, and they'd be right to do it. But yeah, I just, uh, if a coder said to me, I'm an artist, what I do is art, I'd say, fine, you are, that's it. So I don't know, it's such a simple definition. So I don't think it has to be so loaded. Yeah. But if you don't want that label. I don't want it. Then don't take I it. I don't deserve it. Do you think... See that then it that now you're making me now I'm like okay well I, I, maybe I obviously I, I don't fetishize do, art and artists I think that's part of it is bad art art yes so then who then then why are you fetishizing it well I think I, I'm f- I'm in the clear to say that my work is not art for exactly the same logic that you're suggesting you know because I as the artist that's my prerogative <laughs> here you are I'm having a debate I mean <laughs> urban planning it's not like the sexiest most artful 
Like the stereotype about it, it's kind of boring. But when yeah. you actually get into the nitty gritty of it, it's fascinating stuff. Yeah, well, and that's exactly what I'm trying to do with a lot of my writing is to try to make the boring, really nerdy stuff kind of come to life and and um, show why it's important and why people should care. And have people connect with it. Yeah. That's art. <laughs> Sometimes. A lot of the art that I like though is not, it's not like trying. You know what I mean? It's not like pushing the the viewer or the listener to like, have a specific response or, or convey a specific message. It's it's an aesthetic experience. You know, it's something that you kind of let wash over you and it invokes a lot of ideas and a lot of feelings and you get to choose kind of how to meet it. I, I don't know that I, I want my readers to, to have that experience most of the time. It's it's an experience of, of learning and being entertained. Um, and again, maybe I'm getting a little bit too into the sort of like, the fine arts kind of high art worlds. Um, I'm low art. This yeah, is the and there's lowest. a lot of levels of art. Um, but I guess when you asked me that question, I was immediately thinking that that kind of art. Um, and I guess that's sort of where my definitions come from. Okay. Well, I'm just, but then I ask you a question is bad art art. And you're like, yes. And then you're saying that you put it up on a pedestal. Art well, is elevated. I don't, I don't you think don't my art to, is bad art. I didn't say it was. I think it's good writing. But it's not really bad art or good art. I can't tell. I can't can't tell whether we're in a fight or not, <laughs> and I also can't tell why. Uh, I do want to talk about urban planning because, as a foreigner, I don't know. Toronto's a weird city because it doesn't care. It's like very much pulled into the American. Have you been to Toronto? Yeah. It's very much pulled in the American city direction. If you don't look too closely. You might as well just think you're in a right a big American. And it's always city. in the movies as New York. Right? I know that's fucking annoying. Yeah. You can you can tell by the street signs. Yeah. You can tell there's subtle, you know, or they'll put one too many 25 mile an hour road signs up on the street instead of 40 kilometer. Right, and there'll always be the same 25 mile an hour road sign right in the shot, or the same blue USPS postal service right. mailbox. It's like. The, if it doesn't look like Toronto, because you can't see a Toronto... See, I know what the street signs look like. I know that the street lights are painted a different color. Like, I know the subtle things, but if they get a shot that doesn't have the subtle things and you really can't tell, you can tell by how much it's trying to look like a U.S. street. Right. You know? If the New York plates on the cars look too new, it's like... it's like it, You can really tell. I'm going to keep an eye out now, because I've heard this trope, obviously, about Toronto being like a movie uh, filming capital, but... I don't think I've ever really like taken notice because I'm actually very sensitive to this as someone who yeah. loves cities and, and urban planning. Um, like for instance, the show Monk yep. uh, set in San Francisco. LA. It mostly shot in LA. Yeah. yeah. And I, I, that was deeply upsetting to me. Yeah. Um, but I, I should try to keep an eye out for, for fake New York's. That's a great show. Yeah. Tony Shalhoub. Tony Shalhoub, legend. Yeah. Andy uh, Breckman. Yeah. That was, a, that was a big COVID uh, solace for me yeah. <laughs> to, to return to, to Tony. Oh man. He's such a great actor. Yeah. He just nails the neurotic so well, but uh, I don't know where we, oh, Toronto and urban planning. It, if you didn't have an eye for it and you didn't look too closely, you may as well think you're in an area of Chicago in, I don't know, any American city that's medium to large. Mm -hmm. Not New York, but maybe also New York. But then if you start to really look into it, like there's no major freeways, or as we call them, highways, that cut into the downtown. A lot of people don't have cars. There's a really good light rail, like above ground, mm. uh, what do you call it, streetcar system. Transit is a little better. Living in New York, I can't really make that claim, but mo to, according to most Americans, like Chicago, which would be uh, the biggest equivalent, 
And yeah, like green space is done. It's just, it's not a, a city, in my opinion, dictated by the car quite so much as U.S. cities are. Mm-hmm. But it's still dictated by the car. It's nowhere near a European city that doesn't give a fuck about cars. Yeah, it's kind of this awkward middle ground. I think Montreal is, from what I've heard and similar. when I visited there eight years ago, is, is similar. Canada's got this kind of uncanny thing going on for people with an American gaze. Yeah. Because um, it's, you know, it's like basically the same, but then there's just these aspects of it that are like, wait, that's not quite right. But living in that city, it's given me an idea that urban spaces don't have to be dictated by cars. Yeah. Amen. And cars are not people. Uh, I think in some, you know, U.S. cities, like Dallas or I'm trying to think. I mean, any one of them. Any one of them. Yeah. Less so New York, but Less any so city New York, but New York. But yeah. The cars are the people and the people. They get, they, yeah. Getting traffic through a city is more important than getting people walking around. And why that is, is fascinating to me. And it has an intersection with the fucking military industrial. You totally. know, it, it's all intertwined with capitalism. I don't know. It's just, it's interesting to me. It's so interesting. Well, Canada is a really cool uh, neighbor for us to have in the U.S. because, you know, it's got this uncanny dimension to it. It's so similar in so many ways, but then there are these things you're describing. It, it does a lot of things urbanistically better. And a lot of that is rooted in deep historical uh, things that happened. But I think even, you know, in more recent years, a lot of Canadian cities have just invested a lot more money in better transit the Vancouver Skyway system is like really new. Yeah. Automated trains that they doesn't just really like, exist in North America. They just tunneled it without just did it. breaking up the, uh, the, the surface. Yeah. They just created this drill and just drilled under buildings without ripping up the roads. That was wild. Yeah. Am I right about that? I don't actually I know. think that sounds right. Yeah. I mean, they probably used, you know, tunnel boring machines. Yeah. I think there's there's a less litigious kind of culture in Canada too yes. where it's, it's easier to kind of get things Do done. Do you know about the, the Apology Act? Okay, so this is not a um, Canada-wide thing. It's an Ontario thing, but that's mm-hmm. where Toronto is. And it's basically an act that says a simple apology cannot be used as an, an admission of guilt in a civil proceeding. So if, you're, if, if there's a horrible uh, medical malpractice and you lose a loved one on the operating t- table, the doctor can come out and say, we're very sorry. And that's it. You know, they're not going to say more. They're going to kind of act like American doctors where they're saying, they're, well, they're I don't... sorry. Yeah, well, yeah, that's another thing. Sorry instead of sorry. Uh, that's that's one where I choose to say it the Canadian way. Okay. Because it's fundamentally more sincere, I think. <laughs> like your heart is sore. Yeah, like sorry yeah. is like, fuck you. Yeah. Sorry, fuck you, sorry. Sorry, it's like that kids game. You ever play that one? Yes, yeah, sorry, sorry. sorry. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah, we call it sorry. Uh, yeah, so. That's so funny. That's the most Canadian thing I've ever heard. I know, right? Yeah. I It's so funny. So like, obviously they're not going to admit to any malpractice because they know they're going to get sued and, and a family would sue just like in the US and they would win, especially if they went in for a, to get an ingrown toenail removed and they died on the operating table because they got injected with the wrong you know, stuff. But the doctor can come out and the hospital can apologize. In the US, they can't. It's evidence. Huh, and so you get yeah. in all these horrible, like, or if you, it's a hit and run. Yeah. You know, and you get out of your car uh, and you say, so- sorry, sorry. Uh, you could just do that in Ontario. You know, if you go out and say it's my fault, I did it, I'm drunk, obviously that will be used in court. But this, the apology in and of itself is not admissible. Isn't that a wonderful act? Yeah, that's very beautiful. I feel like people would be so much nicer to each other instead of being worried all the time I'm going to get sued. Because sorry doesn't mean anything. It just means, I, I, you know, on a human level. Yeah. 
you know? And, and I agree, it is the most fundamentally Canadian <laughs> thing I've ever seen. Y'all have a lot to teach us, though. I think that's the bottom line. Yeah. We could all be a little more Canadian. <laughs> Are you the stereotype of an urban planner where you're just like public transit, public transit, public transit? Yes, basically. But again, I'm not an urban I planner. I know you're, you write about it. Yeah, but- But I, you must have an opinion in your writings. Oh, of course. No, I have a, a strong opinion and I'm extremely, um, you know, pro-public transit, um, believe firmly in curtailing cars from cities and just like giving pedestrians and bikes their, their due- um, you know, building a lot of housing everywhere. That's another huge issue we have. For everyone. Um, but, you know, as a writer and as someone who's trying to share these ideas with a, a wide audience, I don't want to be too kind of aggro and alienating with the way that I talk about it. So you Pick know, a lane, I, Ben. Pick a fucking lane. My lane is uh, join my, my tribe. It's a big tent. Is it? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's warm in here. Yeah. But- my ex-wife tried I, to, but it was awkward. <laughs> I didn't want her to convert, and we, it was a very strange. He's, at the end of the day, the rabbi's like, if you cast your lot with the Jewish people, I'll consider you a Jew. I'm like, don't you have to fucking take a mikvah bath or something? Not important. What were you saying? <laughs> no, I mean, I, I like the Jewish conversion metaphor for urbanism conversion as well. I, I, I've been in this field long enough to know that the people are very easily turned off by certain ways of talking about cities and and transportation and the urban experience and um i see the people fall into those traps all the time and you know come off a little too strong when they don't need to you know you don't have to call drivers assholes to advocate for a city where cars are less of a of you know a central part of life of the city you know what i mean why do americans so fundamentally believe they need a car they've been brainwashed it's been a, a vast conspiracy for 90 years. Well, I think it, it's, it's, this is something I've been toying with for a while. I read this somewhere, but um, you know, the baby boomer generation grew up in this really unique period in American history where the streetcars that from you know, the early, 19th, or early 20th century, late 19th century, they were ripped out in the 50s and 60s. Um, so pretty much you know, every city had tons of streetcars. Now they have none, basically. Um, and then there were efforts that really only started kind of mid mid 70s 80s when some of the first kind of modern transit systems got built in America there was BART there was WMATA in DC and then um, you know gradually LA Seattle some of these Texas cities started adding transit as well so by the new millennium there's there actually are there's more transit in American cities than there was in the 1960s so that's an interesting thing people might not realize and so people who are you know more millennials and and uh, younger have actually grown up in a world where transit is kind of a real thing. It's a it's an option. It's woefully inadequate, of course, and it could be expanded in a lot better. But it's a different mindset than I think some older people who came up in a world where transit basically didn't exist. And the, the big shiny new thing was driving and freeways. And every American should have a car and the banking system right. was set up to help people finance it. And, you know, interesting, interesting. I want to talk about two things as it comes to your opinion as a writer who mostly covers urban planning. <laughs> At no point did I say you were an urban planner. You did earlier in the, the, the show. Did I? I don't know if it's going to make it in here, but... It'll make it in. Yeah. I like being an idiot. <laughs> it's my true color. No, and I, I like being called an urban planner. It's an honor. I, I just, I don't have the degree, you know, and I've never worked in the field I mean, um, didn't the Colonel Sanders practice as a doctor and a lawyer? And I mean, half before of what discovering I, chicken. Well, no, you know, as a fraud, <laughs> like he didn't have a degree. Like oh, he, really? and he wasn't a colonel. Yeah. 
The talented Mr. Ripley, that's that's for sure, yeah. That's the Colonel Sanders. Yeah. At least that's my understanding. There's two things. I read something you wrote. Okay. Robo Taxis in San Francisco. And yeah. I connected with it because I hadn't visat, which is the past participle of visited, I think. I hadn't visited San Francisco in about a year. Mm -hmm. And I got there. And for everyone listening to this, they won't know what I'm talking about. But Valencia Street is completely carved up at this point into, it's basically a bicycle only street. And for me, that was my major artery to get to work. That's where I rode my motorcycle. Totally inaccessible, but totally by car or, or motorcycle, unless you do illegal shit. Uh, but very much a bike street now. Mm -hmm. The middle of the street was turned into two massive bike lanes. That's less, I don't even know why I mentioned that. But the other thing, almost overnight, I saw all these cruise cars or uh, automatic cars, self-driving cars, AI-driven cars riding around the city, but there'd be some schmuck in the driver's seat when I lived there. I knew they weren't driving. I knew they were just sort of there to interfere if the car did something wrong. Maybe, I don't actually know that, but that was my assumption. Just for safety, maybe they didn't have the licensing to do a driverless, whatever. But that's not so jarring, you know? Especially me as someone who's a techie and, and worked in that world for so long and lived in Silicon Valley. And I use San Francisco to mean Silicon Valley, which I think is fine. Although, if you live there. It's okay, you're absolved. Yeah, I mean, if you live there, the people will be annoyed. But when you're in New York, you can say, I worked in Silicon Valley. I lived in San Francisco, not important. But yeah, I, I never saw a car without a driver. And then I go there, I rented a car because I had to drive up to buttfuck nowhere for a wedding. And they're everywhere. And it was surreal. It's very jarring the first time you're on the road, behind, in front, especially when you're in an intersection and a car's signaling to make a left and mm -hmm. you're coming at it and there's and it's in the middle of the intersection about to make a left and you're coming at it as oncoming traffic and there's no driver in there. It's like, what the? Did you have any hairy incidents? They're just so slow. Mm -hmm. They're like really cautious grandmothers, but grandmothers who are still really good at driving. They're good. They mm -hmm. know what they're doing. Mm -hmm. But if it's speed up a little yeah. or slow down. They're overly cautious. Exactly. Sure. Or if it's maybe merge now to be safe, but it'll be a little safer to stay in this lane and, and brake and, and hold up traffic. Like if there's a car making a right-hand turn, mm -hmm. everyone would want to merge into the left lane if it's a two-lane road, or I guess four-lane, but two-lane, and just kind of pass it. You know, but if, it, if the cruise car is going to do that and there's a chance you might do it, it won't. Little things, but they just make the slowest decisions ever in the name of safety, which is great. Here I am talking like a driver. I don't own a car, Ben. <laughs> but when you rent a car and you have one, all of a sudden you're in the mindset. Totally. I, well, I'm going where yeah. I'm going. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, my interactions were, they seemed really safe. Yeah. I grew to trust them a lot and you trust them to be themselves. Like if you want to do aggressive stuff and cut them off, you know you can do it and get away with yeah, it. Yeah, totally. And, yeah, no, and, no one's going to flip you off. And, and it'll break. Right. You know? Yeah, I, I would not put that to the test too much, especially if you're in a white car. You know what I mean? Like, be careful. Why? It'll think you're one of them? <laughs> exactly. No, it'll think it might not see you. That's that's one thing I, I read about in regards to Tesla autopilot. They they have issues identifying white vehicles. Um, so I would just, yeah, be so careful. They, they, that they treat white people worse. Yeah, exactly. That's good. Yeah, that's they, nice. they discriminate. Yeah, maybe, oh. and maybe, maybe that's programmed in for some kind of cosmic retribution thing, but... No, I mean, it's these these cars are they're really impressive and really cautious until they're not. And then they, there's something really horrible that happens. And um, fortunately, you know, I don't think anyone has I don't think anyone's been directly killed by one of the cars in San Francisco. The autonomous vehicles that are um, now, you know, fully deployed as 
taxis there. Someone will be. Someone will be. Um, and the bigger issue is just the way that they sort of slow up the flow of traffic and specifically like emergency vehicles and um, dealing with just these edge case situations like construction sites and road closures and just like weird shit that happens in San Francisco. They're not ready for that. Any kind of predictable condition on the road, they're they're pretty pretty solid and impressive. You know, I, I think a lot of people in the sort of lefty tech journalism and criticism world are very quick to say, you know, it's a hoax. You know, it doesn't, they're, they're, they don't work. This is being uh, perpetrated on us without our consent and it's, it's dangerous. I, I don't really buy that kind of narrative so much, but I do share the concern that it just like is not going to be good for society. <laughs> exactly. If, if, you, if you zoom out and is the question, do we want more cars on the road or do we want less cars on the road? You know, it, what problem is this solving? Yeah, no, they don't. I mean, they they will solve problems when and if they're deployed in places where transit and Ubers and walking aren't an easy option, like in kind Fuck of Uber. rural areas. But yeah, and, and, and it's really ironic that Uber is now under threat by robo taxis because you know they were they destroyed the taxi industry um and not so here in new york but they they did decimated some, yeah it, so yeah. The, a lot of the cab drivers paid a million dollars they got a mortgage for their medallion in new york and now those medallions are worth a fifth of that or something so they they really screwed over the new york taxi drivers as well even though taxis are still a big part of the the transportation system here i won't call on over here yeah they, they don't know what they're doing it's people coming in from you know not manhattan or not that cabbies necessarily live in Manhattan, but they but live they and breathe it. Yeah. yeah, no, totally. I, I I always have that feeling. Like cabbies, it's a it's a trade. You know, people they've been doing it for years. They they know the best ways to get around at the best times. They've got all the tricks, and it's so bleak seeing you know an Uber driver following the screen kind of blindly. Yeah, looking more at the screen at the road, which is terrifying. I don't want to rate you, and I don't want you to rate oh, me. Oh God, the rating. Oh man, yeah. Can we talk about it? The other thing I want to talk about, although I feel like we didn't get to the deep part about these robo cars. I just, I guess for me, the question is what problem is this solving? Yeah. I mean, I think that's, that is an amazing question. And I don't think that at this moment they're really solving anything. I get I, it for transport trucks. Yeah. And there's, there's and like logistics. There's a long-term potential that this, these kinds of technologies could make cars a lot safer in general. I think a lot of those could be layered onto existing, you know, driver to cars Mm -hmm. Um, and, but, but to really imagine a world where, you know, there's such a high percentage of, of driverless cars on the road, that safety is dramatically improved. Once we reach that point, I think we've got a lot of other issues that those cars are also creating by things like, um, you know, your, your car runs an errand for you or your car picks up the, the delivery food or you, you know, stop taking public transit because taking a driverless Uber is so much cheaper. Those kinds of societal issues are going to rear their heads, uh, I think, earlier than like the, the safety benefits kind of manifest themselves. Maybe and you're right. I don't think, I don't think anyone in, in the U.S. in power is really like thinking through this kind of stuff very hard, no. which is unfortunate. And I don't know how they got legislators to agree to do it in San Francisco. Well, it's certainly not the local people in San Francisco. It's state policy. Yeah. So San Francisco officials are totally powerless. They they hate it. They can't get rid of it. No, but no, the, it's, it's all up to the state. The, the city exists at the pleasure of the state, and the state exists at the pleasure of the federal government. Not uh, right, and maybe. at the pleasure of of lobbying groups that the globalists. Yeah, exactly. 
I've read the protocols. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's all us. I don't get the monthly checks, though, so I, I, maybe i got to update my address in the system. Uh, okay, the other thing I want to talk to you about is Airbnb mm-hmm. being... Uh, I, I fuck... It's, it's these apps. I hate them. I hate Uber. I think the medallion system is actually a very good one, in theory. It's there to protect the public. Mm-hmm. Um, the reason, in my opinion, and I'm an idiot, you might be able to correct me here, but the, the real reason to regulate the taxi industry, let's say, forget Uber, 50 years ago, 100 years ago, whatever, whenever that industry got regulated, is there's a public safety mandate there. These drivers need to know what they're doing. They need to be insured. They need to have some responsibility to take care of their passengers. Therefore, I think the government has a right to regulate it. That, um, that need or that public interest, I think, is, is a noble one. And I'm not against government regulation. I think there's a good place for it. In practice, if you look at how the system was implemented in every major American city, it, not well. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll concede to that. But then Uber comes in and they go guns blazing rather than saying, hey, public safety's big here. They fight any and all regulation. They operate illegally, use pump money into their legal fund, into their legal team to just go in guns blazing. Any and all regulation is bad. Oh, we'll self-regulate. You know, and then there's no, and then if they create that marketplace, there's nothing stopping a competitor, you know. Okay, we do background checks on our drivers. No criminals. Okay, well, here's a cheaper cab company, a rideshare company, where we don't do criminal background right. checks. You know, if you don't have regulation uh, and you leave it to companies to self-regulate, even if they do a good job, they create a marketplace where another company doesn't have to do a good job and they can do shady shit. Therefore... I, I think the medallion system, I mean, maybe, am I talking nonsense? No, I mean, I, I think you're totally right. I, I think especially when Uber and Lyft emerged in like 2012, 13, 14, I think, um, it was just such this wild west atmosphere mm-hmm. and they totally ignored tons of regulations. They, you know, created this uh, phenomenon where they got big enough that the regulators had to kind of play with them. Um, and in cities like San Francisco, it, it caused a huge uptick in traffic, pretty big decreases in public transit ridership. And obviously the taxi industry in every city is, is struggling because yeah. of this. Um, I think on the other hand, they, they, the taxi industries were not providing the service that they ought yes. to have. Yes. Um, so I think there was, there was a need there for better transportation, you know, for, for, uh, you know, on demand, like for higher cars. I agree with you actually. Yeah. But, and, and I don't think, and that's just a sort of a caveat. I don't think that's like the, the thrust of the story. I mean, there's a way in which that need could have been addressed much more successfully and in a way that works, you know, with regulations and tries to support, you know, the public transit sector too. And then the, the other point I would make is that in a lot of cities like New York, they, they did regulate Uber considerably. Um, and now I think they're starting to undermine that. I don't know if you heard, this is a very nerdy urban planning piece of news, but New York has a cap on the number of Uber vehicles that can operate here and Lyft, I think. And they're lifting that cap for electric vehicles. So it's sort of just, you know, a self-own um, that this is one of the many ways that, you know, electric vehicles are going to kind of uh, make cities more car-centric potentially uh, because they have this green sheen that, you know, is halfway the case but still they have a, a lot of the same problems as gas-powered cars and do. the production of them are no greener yeah, and, and the, in some the, cases less green the batteries yeah I and mean, the production is definitely a huge issue you know lifetime these cars are better it's 
I'm, I'm glad that there's more electric cars, but it's, it, we could do a lot more to curtail cars as well. That would probably be the more effective strategy to actually deal with the problems of cars. Sure. But the amount of greenhouse gases that get emitted during the production and resourcing of the raw materials yeah. for electric cars are no greener than regular cars. And they also have the batteries. Okay. Which I know you just said, and I repeated. Um, so Airbnb, another marketplace app, you know, that ostensibly oh, hotels are overpriced or you don't get a, you know, an apartment like experience where you can have a little kitchenette and maybe you don't want housekeeping bothering you. Or you want a couple more square feet. You want to sort of live in a city and feel like you live there. Great. Hotels are crappy in this regard. I agree with the problem, just like I agree with the problem of the taxi system in most cities sucking. So then Airbnb rises and takes available housing units mm -hmm. off the market encourages investment of property for those who already have who want to start in their mind a little business um, but they drive rent up and they take the available housing stock off the market which means people can't afford to live in cities uh that's a problem yeah totally and especially in like the touristy central city neighborhoods i'm sure like this one this is probably yeah has historically been a huge airbnb mecca i mean most of the buildings i know this building does their best to prevent it. Yeah. But can you really? Well, they, they've really, I think just in the last like month, they've kind of started to crack down yeah. on Airbnb. Have you read about this? Yeah, that's what I was talking about. Right, New York right. like, so took think, all these uh, I, units off the market. Yeah, so it's going to be really interesting to see what happens. I mean, potentially that could move the the needle a little bit on like median rents um, because Airbnb is is seems to be more explicitly out of the picture. I read it was in the order of magnitude of five digits of housing units that, right. may, that and, may come on the well, market. And so that's that's the other thing with this Airbnb conversation. I mean, I, I totally agree with the issues with it, and I, I I'm personally love hotels when I can stay in a hotel. I do. Yeah. Unfortunately, it is expensive. often more expensive than an Airbnb. Um, but the the broader issue is just the shortage and affordability of housing. So, um, you know and uh, I've, I've been traveling a lot from my book. I've been staying in some pretty, um, you know, not as touristed kind of fancy places like St. Louis and Milwaukee. And in those cities, you know, where housing is already more abundant and affordable, Airbnb isn't causing the same kind of problems it, it is here, where it's just this kind of Mad Max zero sum game of like, you know, there's not enough housing for everyone. So therefore Airbnb is all the more painful because it's taking from a very limited pie. But those are the cities that people want to visit. No, it's, exactly. Yeah. And yeah. it's all the more reason why we need a ton more housing in New York. Yeah. Where does it go? Up? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. See, have you that, been, to, been to Queens? It's pretty flat. It is. Yeah. It is. I have been to Queens, believe it or not. Yeah. That's, it's, it's uh, nice. that's east of here? Yeah, but you're pointing the wrong direction. Oh. <laughs> there's, the, there's that, what's that river? It's called the East River? Yeah, yeah. And then there's what? Brooklyn? I hear that's really nice. Yeah. Where's that again? East? southeast yeah okay yeah i'm joking I, you can take a subway there. i have very do you live in manhattan i live in brooklyn okay yeah. i have very few friends who live i have one manhattan friend who i'm we're like we call each other our best manhattan friend nice uh but i love living in the city it's just fucking expensive and totally. chaos this yeah. neighborhood's chaos on the weekend yeah no it's crazy i yeah. mean that's another kind of dimension of not airbnb per se but the sort of tourism industrial complex you know in a world where People are very mobile and travel a lot and, um, you know, certain people have disposable income. Neighborhoods like this are, they're really different than they've been 20, 30 years sure. ago. This, this notion of like kind of destination nightlife neighborhoods that people from all around the world are coming to and, um, you know, it totally changes the, the vibes. 
tourism industrial complex. I've never heard that. What, what does that even mean? It means the sort of the universe of kind of like economic and social forces that come from tourism, you know, like the Airbnb is one of them, high-end shopping, you know, restaurants and nightlife that kind of cater to tourists, that sort of, all of those things contribute to a very different kind of neighborhood milieu. Um, and it's not all bad, but it, it certainly can be obnoxious if you're trying to live your day-to-day life in a neighborhood like that. So, um, you know, I, I don't live in a neighborhood like that. So, and I, and you do. So, um, yeah, I wonder how, how you have to navigate that. And I don't really envy you. <laughs> well, we're, we're <laughs> like looking to move. Your, uh, we're looking to move. Yeah. Getting your doorstep vomited on. Yeah. And things like that. We're looking to move. Yeah. Close to here, but less touristy. Mm-hmm. I don't know. And maybe a little cheaper, but, uh, yeah. Um, I guess the last thing I want to talk to is, does the book have a title that you're working on? It Untitled doesn't, it doesn't really have a title book. yet. I mean, the sort of working subtitle is A Field Guide to American Urbanism. You can do better than that. <laughs> Thank you. Well, that's why it's a working <laughs> subtitle and we are still thinking about it. But um, that, that sort of speaks to the format of it, which is going to be these 15 chapters, each about like a really recognizable piece of American cities. So there's single family homes, apartment buildings, um, affordable housing, office buildings, warehouses, freeways, transit systems. And each chapter kind of walks through the history of it, its present state, and how it could change for the better. Is it tough getting a publisher? Like, how does that whole process It is work? tough. I just got a publisher. So I, first I have one? a book contract. Yes, very much so my first one. It's super hard. Wouldn't recommend <laughs> it to anyone. Well, this is also why I think you're an artist. If you're in a field that would be psychotic to do if you didn't love it, that's, that's art. That's a good point. Yeah. That's a good definition that's, of art. Like people ask me, should I get into radio or like that? I'm like, dude, no. Yeah. Same with stand-up comedy. Like there's so many fields where the only reason you do it is because you feel the need to do it. Totally. It's got to be like this intrinsic desire, which yeah. I, I do think I really have with o- writing. Otherwise you'd be psychotic yeah. to be a writer. Yeah. I, you'd be in a psychotic break. <laughs> if you're like, I want to be a writer, but I, I don't really like writing. Yeah. Doesn't doesn't exist. I mean, I guess if you hate yourself. Yeah, exactly. I, if I didn't love this, what I'm doing right now, and I did it, the amount that I do, I would be the most crazy person you've ever met in your life. Totally. Yeah. And I feel that, like that's got to be true for writing too. Yeah. But, okay, so, so how long does it take from I want to write a book to I have a publisher? Uh, seven years. Um, no, I, I, I've been concertedly working on the getting the book published for like nine months, basically. Um, and then I've got kind of a year to write it and then it'll probably come out sometime in 2025. Who's the target audience? The target audience is people, maybe people somewhat like you who are- I'll buy your book. Thank you. I will, I will uh, text you about it. Um, it. People who are interested in and care about cities and um, you know, have these kind of amorphous thoughts about you know, why are there so many cars and why is the infrastructure so bad for public transit, stuff like that, um, who aren't super engaged but would be interested in learning more it's sort of an accessible way to get to people like yourself who are thinking about those things and, and could get further converted to use that metaphor more. Are you going to voice the audiobook? Hopefully not. If you need me to do it. Oh, Except interesting. That, well, some of the words might be wrong is the only thing. That could be, yeah, it could add a new flavor. I was once reading um, Macbeth in high school. We were reading it in English class, mm-hmm. you know, and I was um, Macbeth for that class. And there's, there's sort of a, a climax, I think, in the fourth act where he asks, maybe Macduff, I forget who, he says, do you take me for the Roman fool? Hmm. I don't even know what that means, but, you know, that's the whole thing with Shakespeare. No, people even say they understand it, they don't. And if they do, they're 
too annoyingly literary that I can't be around him. But I read it as I've been watching a lot of Star Trek, so I, I burst it out into class. I bellowed out, do you take me for the Romulan fool? <laughs> and I got laughed at. And I don't know, it's, it's little little moments like that, that. That made you dream of being an audiobook narrator? No, that, that, <laughs> that made me more ashamed of reading and writing in any public setting. Oh, I see. But I, if you don't mind, uh, you know, if you're talking hey, about. I want to give you an audition. I think, like I said, well, I think you have a beautiful voice. I don't know if it's the perfect voice Do you mention voice Roman for, cities in it? No, because it's America. Okay, well, I yeah. could talk about Romulan cities okay. as well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I guess uh, uh, it would be in Italy is where Rome, but you, right. could, you could mention Rome and I could say Romulus, but okay, so the American reader is your target. Are you going to mention Canadian cities? No, oh, it's, it's American. Yeah, yeah, maybe the sequel. Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah. Untitled urban planning book. Yeah, read it, buy it. What about no. that untitled urban planning? No, book? that's that's too artsy. Is we that? don't do art. Yeah, an intro to what? What'd you say? A field guide to American urbanism. A field guide to American, but that implies that I'm going to be out in the field, which I guess I am. You are. Everyone in. lives in cities. Is is an urbanist in a but way? You're 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 you're. Uh, what's the word? You're preventing people who live in rural areas. Well, urbanism you're excluding them. Urbanism is very broadly defined as the pattern of human settlement on the land. That's one of the ways to think about urbanism. Yeah. So I'm going to get you a good is, title for this book. Please, honestly, I'm, uh, please hit me up with suggestions. Okay. We're going to find you a good title. Yeah. A field guide to, say it again. American urbanism. American, I have the memory of a goldfish. <laughs> a field guide to American urbanism. Does your publisher like that title? No. <laughs> We're working on it. We're well, that, on. I mean, that's impressive that they yeah. like you. They want a book yeah. from you and they don't like your title. It's crazy. People do, are so like domain name first, business plan second yeah. these days. It's an old school industry. Yeah. Wow. That's impressive that you sold a book, you got a publisher, and they don't even like your title. <laughs> to me, that's, that's an achievement even above getting a publisher, yeah. uh, uh, selling a book. Well, thank you. Yeah, we'll see it. Maybe I'll be back on the show when it comes out. Yeah. We're going to get you. I'm just trying to think what could be, maybe some fun pun. But not too fun. It's got to be like a two-word, like very evocative statement, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I am trying to think of a pun or play on urban. There's urbane. Well, my Twitter handle is urban. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah I, so I did see that. Yeah. Sounds like. I whenever I walk by Urban Outfitters, I always say Urbane Outfitters because that's very <laughs> yeah. funny to me. But I don't know if that works for yeah. your book. It might. No. Urbane planning. <laughs> Certainly not outfitters no. or no. planning. Yeah. Urban planning. Urban outfitters. Out, outfits now. Okay, well, it's a work, it's a work in progress. Yeah. We'll find you a better title. Yeah. What about the joy of see? They're in uh, computing. There's a typesetting language you may know this called TeX or LaTeX. Hmm. Have you heard of this? No. More for math and science publishing. It's how every math, physics, science book is typeset. You know that awful font where you see algebra? It's like this cursive font. Okay. You, can you picture the X yes, where, yes. The, where uh -huh. the where the little the italics? Yes. Greek numerals. Yeah. Not every mathematical, you know, publish, <laughs> not everything, not everything published in a math journal or book of math is using text, but mm -hmm. it, most of it is. And there's a well-known mathematician called Michael Spivak. He wrote a book called um, Intro to Calculus, which is really funny because it's not an intro to calculus. It's an intro to a real analysis. It's way harder than calculus. Real analysis is the like, the if calculus is the um, practical application, 
uh, real analysis is proving how calculus works. Hmm. The homework assignments aren't, you know, take the derivative of this function. It's prove how derivatives work. You know, pr rather than using the fundamental theorem of calculus to solve shit, it's like prove the fundamental theorem of calculus. It's really hard shit. But regardless, this guy wrote a book about this typesetting language called TEX, T-E-X, or TEC, I think is how it's pronounced. And it's called The Joy of TEX, which is a pun on uh, an old book that a lot of baby boomers bought called The Joy of Sex. Right. And it it's not a comedy book. There's not a joke in it. Yeah. It's a technical manual about how to use a typesetting language. And it's called The Joy of TEX. Yeah, I mean, we need something like that that, would appeal to younger people, you know? And it's hard because like, we don't have a literary culture anymore where there's these like references that everyone understands. Maybe it would have to play on a movie or something. Yeah. There was this book called Paved Paradise by mm -hmm. Henry Grabar, who's a staff writer at Slate. It's about parking. Um, and Paved Paradise is just a great, sure. Title. You know, it's, it's very evocative. Yeah. So that Paved I, I, Paradise put up a parking lot. Exactly. I need, I need a two to three word thing like that. And then I can, my subtitle, you're going to have to let me have my subtitle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A field guide. To American that, urbanism. Maybe, I was going to remember it. Maybe. Well, I, I'm not sure whether that's ultimately going to be it. But What about a field guide to American urbanism, comma, probably <laughs> as a title? <laughs> working. That's a good working title, I would yeah. say. Yeah. I don't, I don't think know, I want I, that on I, the cover. I think, is this parking book, is there any comedy in it at all? Or is it just the title that's kind of a pun? I wouldn't say there's comedy in it, but there, there are lighter and, and more magazine journalism style moments to it are you is your book gonna have that uh we'll see i mean it's it's not gonna be that book is somewhat character driven mm -hmm. by like people that work in the parking industry and such sure um my book is is more um you know rooted in the geography of american cities so there's scenes but the scenes are about the the cityscape and i don't have unfortunately the word count to like profile people you have a word count oh word count's really big with publishing yeah do you talk to your reader using uh, second person pronouns like you? I, I, I might at points. Yeah. So maybe the title could have something like, uh, you know, re referencing the reader. Yeah. You know? Interesting. I don't know. Okay. Well, like I said, if something comes to you in the middle of the night, please do reach out. I'm trying to like get as big of a, a brainstorm sesh as I possibly can for this. It might. Yeah. Thank you for coming here. Yeah. Thanks, David. This was has this been really fun. incoherent? scattered awful it was amazing it was a little scattered but that's the way that life is so i'm vulgar that. i'm sure i said things but do you feel like like it'll reflect badly on you that you did this no definitely not i'm i'm leaving here completely inoffended by anything you said still have a few minutes yeah <laughs> not gonna <laughs> there's the shock shock no i i do have the urge i'm a youngest brother <laughs> okay. and my older brothers picked on me so I, I the instinct to pick on people to push boundaries, yeah. it's there, but it's it's how much you engage with it. Right? Yeah, well, you got to test out your interlocutor too to see what they can handle. I, I don't know, I'm, you know, but a, a humble journalist. I'm not exactly like a biologist, evolutionary biologist, right? Yeah, the, oh, the, 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 those people are uh, pretty hardcore. You know, you're referencing so, social Darwinist type he, folks. Yeah, are you referencing Dan Risky? <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's such a great guy. Yeah, that was a, that was a fun conversation. He's yeah, he does the show every few weeks. Ben, thank you for coming here. Yeah, thank you. I know you're probably regretting it. Why do you say that? Same reason you you've both. got a, you've got very self-deprecating Jewish humor. I, I know I, I I go for my self-deprecating moves as well, but um, I'll tell no. you why I think you're regretting it, and you're going to ask me not to publish this, and you don't like me, and this was awful. I'll tell you why. Okay. The same reason you don't identify as an artist. There's a high bar <laughs> up there for what I think good interviews are, and I know I don't meet it. No way. No, I think that's wrong. Trust me, 
I listened to your show for 10 hours at BMIR. I, While I know, masturbating? N- no, I was a little bit uh, high. <laughs> I told you this reflect, This would reflect badly on you. Yeah. The good news is your publisher's not going to get to an hour through this interview. Yeah, They're going to exactly. turn it off after the first few minutes. Yeah. No, that's okay. I always tell that to people. Being I'm like, high it's, is a fact of life. If it's at the beginning, I should cut it. But if it's an hour deep, the thing no, you no said that you listen. regret, no one's yeah. going to get to it. Yeah. Uh, ben, thank you for coming. Yeah, thank you. All right. That's it. That's it? That's it. I mean, I haven't stopped taping. Yeah. But I will. Cool. Uh, how are you going to do... I assume you're going to chop it up somewhat, right? And <laughs> This is still a part of the show. This is still part of the show. I okay. like... This is actually my favorite part of the yeah. show. The show where the show talks about how the show works. Right. Uh, I'm going to lightly edit it. Do you want to really know the boring technical details that Kinda. no one wants to hear? Because we're taping this in person... Your mic picks up my voice and my mic picks up your mm. voice. So it's actually going to be kind of hard to isolate the tracks. So I will edit it lightly. I, I don't know. You probably notice me. You're, you're uh, you know, you notice me messing with things. Yeah, yeah. I have a little mark button here on my mixer. So I did mark a few times oh, where I'm like, okay, that was a bit messy. I got to clean that up. Okay. Or you or I said something that, you know, needs to be. So I'll lightly edit it, but yeah. I, I, mostly it'll be as is. Okay, cool. Yeah. When do you hope to put it out? Again, very boring question, but I'll, yeah. I'll let you into the mind of, of David Cooper. Uh, I have another interview later today. Uh, after I tape that, I'm going to decide how much time I need on each one. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll have a good idea. This one's probably going to take me about an hour and a half, yeah. two, two hours of editing. I don't know how long the other one is. I have to go to dinner with my girl. This is very fascinating stuff for the show. This is the most, this is my favorite part of the show. I have a dinner with my girlfriend's parents at Keene's Steakhouse. Have you been there? No, that sounds pretty sweet. It's been there since uh, the 1100s. There's Egyptian (laughs) hieroglyphics of this place Uh uh, in South America. Uh, And no, it's been there for like a hundred years. It used to be a men's club. Ulysses Grant went there. It's like this old school, it's not even that good, but it is good, but it's a real vibe. It's an old school steakhouse in Midtown. Okay. Like 30, that sounds so 30, fun. Yeah, 30. No, I mean, those places are you, awesome. do, do, do you eat meat? Yeah. Okay, good. Uh, do you feel bad about it? I feel like I should feel bad about it, but I don't. That's where I'm at too. Yeah. Uh, whenever a vegan tries to talk me into why they're more ethical and moral than me, I'm like, yes, you are. I just, yeah. I just don't give a fuck. But, yeah. This uh, is what I'm saying about cars. You got to be careful. You don't want to hit people where their their love lies you know yeah you know i have a motorcycle yeah and i don't know anything about it i used to go to the shop and toss them the keys and say the tank's empty what do i do yeah obviously it's a joke i can i can put gas in my tank i can put air in my tires and i can even clean my chain but i don't like to because it's fucking annoying that's more than i can say but i don't care about motorcycles and I, it's it's the cheapest Ducati you can buy. It's the Scrambler. But it does say Ducati on it. Yeah. And so sometimes, and it's a nice bike. It's like a black bike. Do you I, park it outside? Yeah. I mean, I, I have a, I pay for a garage, but when I'm riding it, okay. I park it up front. Yeah. And uh, I dropped it a long time ago and I dented the um, exhaust. Mm. And so I got a black exhaust. So it's like a black bike with a black exhaust. It's a nice bike. It's like six or six. It's not a fancy bike, but it says Ducati. And so whenever people see me park it, they want to start talking about motorcycles with me. About CCs and fuel right. injected liquid. They cooled. think you're that kind of guy, and I'm just like, yeah, yeah. I don't know, just I, a lot of nodding and yeah. yeah. But there are people who love their cars. Totally, yeah, and I, I get it. I mean, I guess, yeah. yeah it kind of sucks to be that person and live in Manhattan and have your car in Manhattan. I yeah, think that's that's kind of where I'm like. Maybe you should rethink your priorities. It's wild, unless yeah. you have a billion dollars. But I hate cars. Yeah, I hate them. I hate driving. I hate everything about them. They, I, I mean. They, they're kind of fun to drive, I guess. But Ben, 
this is the show. This is where the mics turn off, and then we discuss. I don't know what what are, what are we going to talk about I don't after? Know. This? Yeah. How, when do you have to go back to Brooklyn? Uh, well, I'm going to go. I have a, a WeWork subscription that I'm so I'm going to go back to my WeWork and do Fucking some typing. Nerd. Yeah. Do they have rooms that are soundproof there? They claim to be, but they're not really. I can't. They're like little phone booths. It's honestly, you know, my apartment, I I fully agree with what I think you are implying that WeWork is fascist, but it's great. (laughs) It's really helpful. It's nice to get out of that. that? You know, you're, you're a Canadian leftist. Yeah. I'm just, just uh, stereotyping you a little bit. No, it's, it's really an absurd thing, but it is, it is helpful for my mental health to get the fuck out of the house. Yeah. Yeah, have like somewhat of a kind of commute, normal. Yeah, that's life. Yeah, that's all, that's been the trouble for me, right? Because when I was working for that Canadian network, the station was in Toronto, mm-hmm. and now that I do this, it's mostly over the computer. You know. Yeah. This is my first in-person taping of that's the show, crazy. which is wild to me. That's because, a shame. Yeah, you should do more. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, Ben, that's it. You're okay. going to WeWork. I'm going uh, to WeWork. I'm a little gassy, so I'm going to go stand over there and fart, and then I'll come and talk to you. (laughs) Can I use your restroom, actually? No. (laughs) That's a great way to end the show. Can I fart in your restroom? You can. Uh, Goodbye.